now we come to the conclusion of the three guys, oiled naked wrestlers, circling each other in their tracks on the burning sands of the seventh circle of hell with our pilgrim and his guide Virgil up on an embankment looking down at them. The conclusion of what has been an unbelievably dramatic and changing storytelling changing, narratively changing episode. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which, you know, we slow walk through comedy. And hey, if you're dropping in here, you're dropping into the conclusion of some heady stuff. You might want to go back at least to the beginning of Canto 16, if not the beginning of the whole walk and walk with us. But either way, here we are. We're at line 79 through 90. We're going slowly through Canto 16 because I think it's such a corker. This is the passage. If it costs you so little at other times to give satisfactory answers, they all said in one voice, happy are you who can give such a speedy reply. Therefore, if you get out of these mucky places and go back to see once again the beautiful stars, when you'll be glad to be able to say, I was there, please make sure that people hear our story. Then they broke up the circle and flew off, their fleet legs seeming like wings. An amen couldn't have been said as fast as they disappeared. That's when my master thought it was time to leave. Short passage, much to say, three big points. Let's get straight to it. First up with what these three say in one voice. They reply to the pilgrim's oracular prophetic pronouncement about the nouveau riche in Florence, his rejection of Brunetto Latini's diagnosis of the problems of Florence, and his stance up toward being the great prophet Dante. They reply, if it costs you so little at other times to give satisfactory answers, happy are you who can give such a speedy reply. This might sound a little snotty to your ears, but it's really not. What they're saying is that the truth comes quick to your lips. And so if, you know, you can do this right, and if, you know, you can say these things so fast, you got to be one happy guy. This is a a compliment from them, I think, but there's more here than meets the eye. This is a strange moment because here have been these three, right? And they've been circling each other on the sands, on the burning sands as the fire falls, trying to keep moving so they don't have to be stretched out on the sand. And they, at this moment, speak in one voice. I think this is the important point that the three of them become one. They haven't been this way yet. Rustacucci has been the spokesperson. He's been pointing them out. He's been pointing out new people, Bossiere, that came amongst them. He's He's been doing all the talking for them. And now suddenly they speak in one voice. Remember last time I said that they give you the pilgrim this wish, may your spirit long animate, keep, keep the members of your body moving. And I remember I said, it's kind of a wish for spiritual and bodily unity. And I said, keep that in mind because that's going to become important. Here's why it's important. It's a little setup, a little hint for this bit in which suddenly these three rotating on the sands speak in one voice. We haven't seen people speak in unison. We're going to see people <laughs> 
especially in Paradiso, speak in unison as a group. But here, this is the first time this has happened. I think it's important to note that this happens after the pilgrim gives his first truly oracular prophetic statement because his statement of truth, of Florentine problems, that is, the city's become so rich that it has forgot its religious, cultural, historical value, that, that people are only focused on their own greed and their own good. And that has led it to already lament its fate because people are going to basically go to war over each other's wealth. Because of this oracular statement, he has been able to unify these three guys. It must work that this prophetic voice is so true and so real that it causes a cohesion and it causes these three disparate Gelf heroes to speak in one voice. Remember, I told you that for Dante, politics is how to get people moving toward a common good and that the Aristotelian definition of politics and that you do that through proper rhetoric. Well, what is then the rhetoric that leads people toward a common goal? It is the voice of the prophet that allows people to bind together to see their common good. Now, these guys are still damned, and they're still not going to make great civic virtues down here in hell, but I still say that if the point of civic virtues like courtesy and valor are to find a common good that people can strive for together, it's important that after Dante's first major prophetic pronouncement, he unifies three guys who wouldn't necessarily be unified because these are three big military, historical, political figures. Mostly they'd be interested in themselves and that he's got them speaking in one voice. It must be ultimately thematically important to the poem. They go on. Therefore, if you get out of these mucky places still speaking as one voice and go back to see once again the beautiful stars and notice the the ring to Brunetto Latini, follow your star. And they're talking about seeing the stars up above. They're talking about seeing those stars when you stand up on the surface of the earth, just like Latini was talking about follow your star. He meant not heaven, but he meant your your destiny, your horoscope, follow your star. And here too, a ring, right? When you get out of here and you're back looking at the beautiful stars, which we know from Latini has some kind of destiny built into it, when you'll be glad to be able to say, I was there. In other words, <laughs> you're out of this nasty place and you'll think, wow, thank gosh, I'm not still there. But you know what? At least I was there once. Well, then please make sure that people hear our story. Here's the deep irony. Our pilgrim has spoken for the first time in a truth-telling voice, in a mouthpiece of God, in a prophetic announcement. But truth doesn't amount to a hill of beans in hell. These guys are focused on what they've always been focused on, fame, on being remembered, on people remembering who they are, like so many of the damned, try this gambit. They are focused on get back up there and make sure people remember us. Although they have been bound together by the prophetic pronouncement, at least in my reading of the passage, 
it doesn't in the end change who they are. And in fact, and the deep irony will continue out through the next circle of hell that the truth doesn't really matter in hell. The truth, in fact, has very little effect on hell, except at this moment is when the circle breaks up and they fly away. The truth does banish your historical heroes. How's that? I can't, you can't not think of the current moment, right? You can't not think of the current redefinitions of history, the current redefinitions in the United States of the U.S. project, that the truth, saying, honest to God, this is the problem, it is what finally breaks up the circle of your historical heroes and off they fly. Now, it's true. They don't have anything else to say. And he's one up them. They have given him their personal narratives. They've talked about trying to be famous, still be famous, you know, yada, 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 all that stuff. And he has lofted up beyond their rhetoric, their pretty rhetoric in which they use all these kind of poetic flourishes when Rooster Coochie speech and when Latini speaks back in Canto 15. And Dante's one up them all by going <laughs> to the highest level of rhetoric, the prophetic voice. So it's true, he's one up them finally. But there is this economy of the passage that A, he says the truth, it unites them, but it doesn't really make any difference or change them in any way, and it banishes them. Off they go, flying away. And he gives it an amen. An amen couldn't have been said as fast as they disappeared. And surely this amen sitting here is meant to refer back to that prophetic voice about the nouveau riche in Florence and how it has engendered such arrogance and dissipation that sits here as the finale on the passage. Our pilgrim has reached a point where he deserves an amen. Now, it's very in the plot, an amen couldn't have been said as fast as they disappeared, and yet there it sits for us to notice it. One more thing about this short passage. The last line. That's when my master thought it was time to leave. Here's the big question. Was Virgil waiting for this lesson? Does, was, is Virgil standing around waiting for this? Because why the notation that when these guys break up, it's time to leave? Well, obviously, it's time to get going because there's no one else to talk to. But it seems to have a little more import to it than that. I mean, you could just say that the, an amen couldn't have been said as fast as they disappeared. And on we went. Right? You don't have to have this. The master thought it was now time to leave. So is Virgil waiting for this? Well, there's two ways to look at it. No, he's not. Um, that 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 is that Virgil has now seen the noble Guelphs run off, and so he is the one who emphasized their nobility. He is the one who saw them as these Florentine warlords and Florentine politicians who deserve some kind of courtesy. And so, no, he doesn't really wait for the lesson to be learned here. He's just waiting for their departure. And once the guys who are above him on the pecking order leave, it's time for him to leave. Okay, that's one way to look at it. Or you can say, yes, Virgil was waiting for this lesson and for them to leave. And Virgil was waiting this whole thing out. And that Virgil knows that the civic good is not enough. After all, the Aeneid did not save Rome. <laughs> and the Virgil's work on his own poetics was not enough to keep Rome intact and keep it from falling. So you could say that, in fact, at 
this moment that there is this banishment of these great historical figures, the kind of people Virgil himself would have written about. There's this disappearance of them. And Virgil has kind of been waiting for this all along as if what? To see the truth of Florence, you have to let go of your notion of the heroism of previous figures, or to see the truth and diagnose it correctly, you have to get rid of the notion that there were some kind of heroes working toward a common good when they were in fact only working to be remembered after their own death, or working with ulterior motives involved. If so, then Virgil really is a moral guide at this point for our pilgrim. If not, then Virgil is a hapless guide and the pilgrim is learning lessons on his own. I vacillate between those two answers like mad, but I do know that this line has brought us to a great break in the canto. And from here, the canto moves out to the part that everyone always wants to make the center of the canto, but I don't think it's so. I think it's these three guys. I think it's Tegiaio and Rusticucci, and I think it's their problems out on the sand and Guido Warlord. I think that this entire thing has been about the problems of civic virtue and whether in fact mm, what the historical way that civic unity has been sought has not proven effective and there must be new ways to find solutions that bedevil Florence but to get to that we're going to have to find out the problems that bedevil our poet because this canto is going to turn from civic virtues to poetic ones and we're about to make that turn once we hit the next passage of the 16th canto this is a unbelievable canto difficult it twists in ways that are unpredictable so come back join me mark scarborough on walking with dante subscribe rate this podcast do what you need to do i'm doing what i need to do and we can take this slow walk through what is a mind-blowing piece of literature See you next time.